Hey there. Thanks for joining me on Comedy Masterclass, where I interview creators about the craft of writing comedy. Today, I am thrilled to have Billy Murnett with me, screenwriter, novelist, and author of Writing the Romantic Comedy, The Art of Crafting Funny Love Stories for the Screen. Billy is also a story analyst at Universal Pictures, a script consultant, an instructor at UCLA, and he has published over 20 romance novels himself under a pen name. So quite the amazing career. But Billy, before we dive in, is there anything else you'd love people to know about you and your connections to creating comedy? That's probably more than enough right there. Yeah. Well, you've done so much, so much to ask you about. Uh, what I want to start with, though, is a broad question, which is that you have focused so much of your career on rom-coms, both analyzing and you're also a practitioner in being a novelist, too. What is it that you really love about rom-coms as a genre that's made you want to invest so much time in them? Well, I was born a romantic, evidently. Oh. Um, and, and my parents were a very loving couple, and they were smart, sort of sophisticated New Yorkers, and so they liked to banter. Right. And I can remember, in fact, some of the first romantic comedies I ever saw was at the foot of their bed on the old TV, watching, you know, screwballs like Bringing Up Baby and, you know, The Awful Truth and Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn and those kinds of things. And, it, and evidently, it really ruined me mm. for, uh, for real life. <laughs> uh, but it got me onto it uh, from an early age. And... Um, it also, to be honest, uh, is, is I just found it a fairly easy form to write in mm. for whatever reason. Uh, it just kind of the humor and the, uh, I guess I'm an optimist and one sort of needs to be if you're going to believe in true love, you know, and things like that. So uh, I'm, I'm jaded and cynical now in my older age, but uh, from early on, I certainly was on that track. I love that. And yeah, it's it's lovely to come at it um, from that sort of feeling approach, because I, I love that you balance both, that you come across uh, in the book as such a, a lover of the genre and someone who also, from all the vast experience that you have, is able to analyze it in really useful ways. I found so many of the frameworks really, really useful. So one well, of thanks. the frameworks that I actually wanted to jump into, and we'll mix a, a bit of like craft and also analysis into the conversation, is the triangle and the ensemble. And talking about that in relation to the dynamics within the genre and why I found it so helpful, uh, like in a really subjective way, is I was then trying to pick out different movies in terms of how I've enjoyed them and which category they fit into. And I definitely like had a clear preference for all kinds of reasons. So I found that mm. framework really helpful. But for people who haven't read the book, I'd love you to unpack just a little bit like what, what interests you about the dynamics in, rom- in rom-coms. Right. Well, I uh, I should have the book in front of me to, to make sure of this, but I, I kind of break down romantic comedies into a few little sub subclasses, uh, triangle being one of them. Mm. Um, I think people are drawn to it because there's just so much more to work with. Mm. First of all, you've got instant conflict, right? Because most, most couples, unless you're polyamorous or whatever, uh, you, conventionally, it's two people. But in a triangle rom-com, obviously you have three. And in the best kinds of triangle romantic comedies, it's not binary in terms of characterization. 
meaning mm. you need to see good qualities in the one that you don't want your protagonist to end up with, just as you want to see some problems perhaps with you know, this ostensible hero or heroine. So it, it actually sort of inherently uh, forces a writer to be a little more nuanced, a little more complex in approaches to character. Hmm. Triangle movies that are not as effective are ones where you just look at the other guy and you go, oh, I'd never end up with him. Um, Bridget Jones's Diary comes to mind, especially hmm. because it's based on the granddaddy of all romantic contemporary romantic comedies, which is Jane Austen's work. Um, you know, Hugh Grant is a cad and there's no doubt that you would not want to depend on him as a committed uh, mate. Nonetheless, he's incredibly charming and he's always funny. And even when he's being awful, uh, there's something very appealing about him. And so to me, that's like a great paradigm for the kinds of characters that work in the romantic comedy because the romantic comedy although much maligned as being superficial and not about much and i know we're going to talk about themes so we'll get mm. more into that but um is actually one that is really character driven mm. by the nature of the beast right and so it kind of fosters i think a deeper uh understanding of character than let's say your average action thriller or you know many of the other popular genres where character is just you know a sketch he's the man with a gun okay um so for that reason triangles are really rich mm. and you get to play characters against each other and as i say you have that tension inherent which means you can create other conflicts on top of it and then you've got a pretty you know you've got a full platter uh, ensemble romantic comedies are difficult Mm. Um, because, you know, just the, the, the sheer numbers involved and there the danger is being superficial because you don't want to just like slap a characteristic on somebody and say that's them. Um, but what's nice about ensembles is it, again, gives the writer a great variety to work with. And certainly if you're working with a given theme, let's say your story is about trust, then you get to actually act out four different five different versions of what trust is about you know and this part of the ensemble is about people who are just inherently untrustworthy this mm -hmm. couple is people who are you know too naive and trusting and etc 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 so you can really get a workout on whatever your movie is about if you're using an ensemble and of course traditionally over the years ensembles have been very adept at hitting different demographics right mm -hmm. you've got the young couple the old couple you know everything in between and so it's for that reason as i say it's challenging for any screenwriter because and, and also for readers by the way because you know any producer or director, anyone who's looking at your script has sort of got to have like you know a, a playlist to um keep tabs on all these characters so i wouldn't it's not that i wouldn't say don't try this at home but i would say maybe not kick off your writing career with an ensemble because those are tougher to do yeah, I do love it when it works. So you um, brought to life, like as an example, one of my favorite movies, Crazy Stupid Love uh, in oh, the ensemble comedies. Movie. And I was like, yeah, oh, that's why I love that so much. I mean, so many reasons. And um, really hard to to pick out of all of them. And you've already said that like some of them you have particular memory associations uh, with because it's when you saw them. I love that image of you uh, at the foot of your parents. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. But are, are there any others that 
you find that you go back to multiple times with that feeling of, that you just still absolutely love to watch them um, as a viewer without having to necessarily be an analyst? It's really hard to pick favorites. It, it is, but I, there are a few that I'm yeah. addicted to. Uh, the okay. one that, of course, always always comes to mind for repeated and repeated and repeated viewings, and I'm, it's going to sound facetious, Groundhog Day. Uh, mm, because first okay. of all, people don't generally think of it as a romantic comedy. But it totally is from top to bottom. The whole story is driven by his romance uh, with uh, the newscaster's romance with his TV producer. Mm. And in fact, the climax hinges on it. He he either he gets out of it through his pursuit of her or he doesn't. Um, So what I love about Groundhog Day as a rom-com is it's a hybrid because, Mm. you know, you can just look at it as sort of a sci-fi or rather fantasy fantasy comedy. Uh, because the Groundhog Day, which, by the way, has become a paradigm now. I mean, I, I can't tell mm-hmm. you how many scripts one reads where it's it's Groundhog Day on the moon, you know, or Groundhog Day at school or in whatever context. Uh, and in fact, one of the most recent rom-coms that I really enjoyed on Netflix, uh, Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. Yes, is, I love that. You know, which, yeah. which is a sort of a Groundhog Day variant right there. Anyway, the reason I love it is uh, it's one of those, and I've come to know Danny Rubin. He's a acquaintance friend. Um, it's one of those just brilliantly inspired ideas. The concept is just yeah. so good that it has spawned its own mini genre. And of course, Bill Murray is the perfect hero for a movie like this. And so the humor is nonstop, but it's about something, and it's about mm-hmm. something profound. It's about questioning why are we here, <laughs> what are we, and what are we doing, and what makes it worthwhile. And so you're getting really the full platter in that movie. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you watch it over and over again, as one does, uh, there's so many great runners, meaning gags that are you know seated early on and, and just have multiple payoffs throughout the movie. And it's just full of them. So you've got a lot to look at and a mm. lot to enjoy. Uh, another one that comes to mind that I will always sort of drop everything and get sucked into if I happen upon it on TV is Moonstruck, oh, okay. which um, is unusually well-written. It's a playwright, John Patrick Shanley, who wrote the screenplay. And he's got that playwright's depth. And I just think the characters is just so memorable. I mean, if you've seen it, you will never forget Nick Cage and, and uh, Cher and, and the family. It's kind of almost a little ensemble-ish, mm. right? Because you've got the mom and dad and you've got other subplots going on. And it's such a vivid world. I mean, you just know who those people are and where they live and what that culture is about. And it's got that sort of wish fulfillment fantasy of everybody goes, oh, I wish I you know, had that kind of a vivid family with such great food Mm. um and um the poetic imagery and everything about it is just it's just a gorgeous piece of work uh so those are the two more contemporary ones that i think i find myself coming back to you mentioned in more recent years uh crazy stupid love Mm, loved it which 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 got sort of maligned a little bit when it first came out as as most rom-coms do Mm. um but i think over time is just looking better and better. And it's got a few iconic scenes in it. Uh, the great Emma, Emma Stone and uh, mm. uh, Ryan uh, with the, uh, Ryan you know, the tribute. Yeah. yeah. The Ryan Gosling with the tribute to Dirty Dancing. And, yeah. uh, you know, that whole sequence is just 
so lovely. But everybody in the movie is quite quite good. It ends a few times too many, and there mm. there is one storyline in it which is kind of vaguely offensive, you know, mm. with the kid. Um, it's a little overwritten, mm-hmm. but it's it's there's a lot to like in it. So yeah. that more recently, if I was going to reach way back, uh, then I would say the Lady Eve, probably the paradigm of a great golden age romantic comedy, and uh, the other ones I mentioned, like Bringing Up Baby and Awful Truth and all the, all those Hawks, mm. His Girl Friday, those those Hawksian uh, rom coms back then. And if you really want to go all the way back, I was happy to see City Lights make the AFI, you know, the big and even the British. Uh, BAFTA list. It was mm. very, very high, I think. Um, and again, we tend to forget silent movies. What, you know, no one's, who cares at this point? Uh, but Chaplin, City Lights, laugh out loud funny and heartrendingly romantic. So mm. there's that. I love that. And so many things I want to follow up on in uh, bits that you pulled out from that too. So one that I'd love to pick up on is World. Uh, and what you mean by that and how you think um, so many different angles we could come at. But for example, things that you think get overused or risks that you would like people uh, to consider or ways to make it really rich. Take it from any angle that you like, but how to think about world. Because mm. often I think people feel a little more confident thinking about the characters. Still loads to do there, but what about world? Well, I would say taking off from what you just said, and that's a great question. Um, character and world are interrelated, yeah. right? Uh, I mentioned Moonstruck. Well, those characters can only live in that world. They come from that world. So I think the first thing to think about is um, we go to the movies to enjoy uh, wish fulfillment fantasies and to enjoy other people and, and other worlds. It's a big part of what makes any movie fun is you go to some place you're not familiar with or you see a place you are familiar with in a new light, uh, in a different way or with more depth. So the thing about world is it just gives you a great hook to hang your story on, to really think about what's a place I would like to see? What's a, what's a setting that I don't all like? For example, you said, what is uh, something that's abused or misused? Mm. Immediately what came to mind for me is New York City, mm. which by the time we get into this century – had been so overexploited, specifically in romantic comedies, that it's just, you know, it just becomes shorthand for like romantic city. As a studio reader, I now am thankful that these days I'm starting to see so many scripts that are set in, you know, out of the way cities, out of the way places, smaller towns, uh, you know, um, Oshkosh. Uh, for example, Chicago has become has sort of shifted. <laughs> New York has given the mantle over to Chicago and America. London has become very popular as a place to sit. But anyway, just by way of saying, try not to pick a world that you feel like you've seen it in you know hundreds of movies. And what's one that you know intimately? And what's one that you may know a little something about that you can use in your story? Um, this also factors into something you had mentioned, which is this idea of uh, making your movie cinematic. Mm. Romantic comedy writers, because they're so dialogue-driven usually, tend to forget that we want visual stimulation and we want to see great imagery. And some of the stronger romantic comedies do have that. 
And before New York was a cliche, and before Woody Allen was a pariah, uh, back in the old days, he was a master of using parts of a city to create visual interest. It's pretty much what uh, Nora Ephron borrowed, let's say. <laughs> Everyone always uses the word homage for mm. creative stealing. Uh, if you look at When Harry Met Sally, it's essentially a Woody Allen movie in drag um, in terms of all the things about New York and all the settings that are used. I would say if you're a romantic comedy writer and you're wanting to use a world that is either unfamiliar or you don't think of as romantic, When Harry Met Sally is actually a good movie to look at in terms of how a world is used, because there's all kinds of wonderful little gags, uh, whether it's them doing the wave at the baseball game or the women at another table, the famous diner scene that's the set piece in the middle of that movie with Meg or uh, Meg's fake orgasm. Mm-hmm. Um, very adept at using both setting and props. There's a scene in When Harry where he's about to run into his ex and he's playing with one of these um, uh, karaoke-like machines that just happens to be in that section. So it's a great movie to look at in terms of, hmm, how did Rob Reiner find ways? Because if you look at the screenplay for When Harry, it's wall-to-wall dialogue. Mm. This is pages and pages of just, you know, there's nothing else but that. Um, And he had the task of like, oh, God, you know, how do I somehow make this a movie movie? Well, he did it by really investing in the worlds that he had and and really turning up the volume on it. I love that. And so many brilliant things to think about there. I wanted to pick up on you've mentioned images uh, in that context as well. How does image connect to theme for you and also it's like development of the questions like why does theme matter so much you have really brilliant questions mm. and insights in the book for this genre yeah let me let me start with that because uh this is it's really so important um theme by the way the word theme i think is what scares people off of mm. considering it you know because uh, it sounds like oh theme like it's this thing that you know gets put on top of a Unfortunately, in, in a lot of our schooling, I don't know if this is true in Britain as well as America, you know, it's all, you have to read something and define the theme. And it's like, well, great, but how about let me enjoy the poem, you know? Um, so to me, it's more, what is it that you want to write about? Mm. You know, like what the thing that I ask most of my clients in my consult work and anybody that I'm working with, and it's what we do at the studio often, trying to find the spine of a story, you want to determine if it's a romantic comedy, it's not just enough to say, here's the two people who are going to end up together. Uh, it's because they discover true love, let's say. It's what is it about love? What specific thing are you saying love means for these characters? Because there are multiple answers to that. I mean, you can, there's so many, you know, anybody that you would pose it to would probably give you a variation on, on what is what is it. And we all have, like, for example, just because we've been talking about it, Harry Met Sally, for Nora Ephron, she became fascinated. She was talking to Rob Reiner, and he gave her a male point of view on dating and getting involved with women. And she was, well, appalled, first of all, but secondarily fascinated by men and their whole take on dealing with romance and women. And so she had questions 
that she wanted to answer and explore about men and women, which led to this sort of the, the misnomer theme of when Harry met Sally that everybody goes to is, can a man and a woman really be friends? And yes, the movie is about that. It's also about other things beyond that, if you kind of dig a little deeper, and I don't want to get down in the weeds with that particular film. But all by way of saying, once you know you're exploring what does love mean to me, or how do people fall in love in a contemporary way, or uh, what is the difference between one kind of love and another kind of love, or whatever question you are personally uh, invested in, then you've got something to hang your movie on. Because otherwise, if it's just two funny people who, who have funny things happen to them as they fall in love, you end up on a very surface level. And to me, the great opportunity that the romantic comedy affords more than many other genres, as I started out saying, is the ability to really delve into character and say, what is this character? What is the character about? What is their belief system? And how does that change how they are in the world and how they relate to other people? And is there something in their insight that we could relate to and perhaps think about uh, our own beliefs in a different way? Um, people want to know, why does love endure? Mm. Why, how, they, you know, meet a couple that's been together for 60 years and you know, say, oh my God, how is that possible? Well, that's a great question to answer. And again, we'd all have different versions of it. Um, some couples have been together for 60 years and they don't even talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's just, it's a marriage of convenience. But you've all, we've all met the couples, whether it's 10 years or whatever, where we know when we meet them, that this is a real love, a lasting love. And of course, what you want to find out is how, why, what is it that makes this work? That's a central question for all of us as human beings. So as much as we disparage this genre, and by now, you even just say the words romantic comedy and it's, you, know, you, you can be in trouble in certain mm -hmm. circles, but it's really a, a form that forces a writer to grapple with some fairly central questions about being alive on the planet. I love that. So, so you, mentioned, yeah. you mentioned imagery, though. I, mm. I, I kind of got lost in the theme part of it. Um, Imagery is just another vehicle hmm. for expressing this what it's about idea. Moonstruck, for example, is about can this pragmatic, cynical Italian-American woman who just doesn't believe in any of that crap, so to speak, can she find love that's more romantic? And can she really come to believe in love as a, as a transformative force? She meets one of the most romantic men alive, a, a guy who's all about opera. And then if you start to look at the movie, you see what is it that brings them together? And there's two motifs that are always interacting throughout Moonstruck. One is the moon, mm. obviously, and they've all got their different moons, right? Uh, and then there's the hands. And mm. there's this great visual run in Moonstruck where when they go to the opera together, uh, they're seeing, I think it's Lab OM, uh, and there's a moment where the characters on stage take each other's hands, and it's featured very prominently. About 15 minutes later in the film, when Loretta is, for the first time, going to go upstairs with uh, the Nick Cage character, and he's, of course, got a wooden hand, right? He lost his hand 
due to something, an accident that happened with his brother, there finally her taking his hand is then like 10 times more meaningful because A, we've seen it in the opera and we know it's a sort of a symbol of trust and uh, romanticism and it relates to the story in a very specific way. And there's this kind of this idea of intimacy that the hand symbolizes that it's commonplace. You know, it's not something that you would think. Again, people think imagery and they think, oh, my God, it's got to look like Lord of the Rings or, Mm. you know, or imagery has got to be like something really wild. No, an image could be a glass of water. You know, if that means something, if it represents something to your characters, it can be huge. Anything that you find meaningful Mm. that can be a vehicle of expressing something in your story. Yeah. And I think it's really fun to think about. And as you mentioned with Groundhog Day and going back to watch all those things that have been seeded as well, interesting to think how things connect through and develop and layer emotionally. Yeah, and pay off. I love Mm -hmm. that. I I think it's really fun to think about. Oh, I love it. And I wanted to ask you before I forget about writers who um, are interested in combining genres, because you mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned that, you know, they can be almost like this frustration with like pure rom-com or like as we move through the decades, we have different thoughts about uh, how relationships work, but there is also this huge opportunity to explore it in so many different ways. You mentioned um, Palm Springs um, and you, in the book as well, you mentioned her and Mm. I hadn't actually thought about the sort of rom-com element of that as strange as it is, because I think in, in my head, I'd kind of, put it more almost in the like the technology side even though clearly it's a relationship for some reason I think because I'd made a slightly narrow definition of rom-com I hadn't moved it across into like of course so I'd love to know any sort of practical advice for other writers who might unintentionally have boxed themselves in a little bit when they're thinking about rom-com to sort of think intelligently about mixing genres Mm, that's a beautifully articulated question and I totally uh, this is something near and dear to me as, as a topic. Romantic comedy is very misunderstood in that a lot of movies that are romantic comedies, uh, I mentioned Groundhog Day, mm. uh, are hybrids, are, are both romantic comedies and other kinds of movies. Her, as you say, technological sci-fi fantasy, but the whole movie, I mean, when you look at it from a rom-com point of view, it's a romantic comedy that says, what happens when a guy falls in love with his computer? I mean, that's, that's basically, you know, sort of the origin of, of that as a romantic comedy. But here's the thing. Hybrids are great now more than ever. By hybrid, I mean when you're combining a strong romantic comedy plot and through line with something else. Uh, in the 90s, there were a lot of crime comedies that had romantic comedy through lines in them, uh, from Pritzi's Honor to... Uh, something wild, movies like that. Uh, We often see these days even Marvel movies that have some romantic comedy elements or at least superhero or heroine movies that have that. Um, Because romantic comedy in its purest form, which people think of as two people sitting around talking in a cafe, is hard to get produced and, you know, that that genre has fallen into disrepute. If you're a writer who's looking to get produced, it behooves you to think, what's the most unusual place that I could find a romantic comedy in? In other words, not only world, Mm. but what's the genre? 
uh, sports, for example, Bull Durham famously was a merging of, of that. I just read another baseball rom-com just last week. Um, soccer, there have been a few. For example, though, I mean, for somebody like a male writer who loves football, uh, you know, there's a great opportunity. You don't have to. The thing about romantic comedy is not to think it's a romantic comedy. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I know that sounds odd, but what no, I mean is yeah. if, if you're not thinking, oh, it has to be like a romantic comedy and instead just think, here are two characters I love who are going to get involved with each other simply that and then just think where could this be it could be in a crime context it could be a romancing the stone adventure context it could be in a technological context it could be all over the map in terms of the kinds of movies that could have a romance uh i've even lately seen a number of specs that are outer space romances um just to say hybrids are great if you're thinking in terms of how do we get a romantic comedy made, uh, hybrids are a really fertile, fertile ground to till. Yeah, I love it. And great encouragement, great encouragement to kind of just shift the, the viewfinders and think a bit differently, which is great because it's so easy to kind of get a little tunnel visioned about what it should be or could be. Perfect. And I'd love to ask, this is not an easy question, but just we there's just been such a huge rise in the streamers uh, like Netflix, Amazon producing a series. And you mentioned some, some great ones uh, in your book. Do you think there are any um, sort of just like in a meta level questions writers should really ask themselves if they're considering a series shape versus a movie shape for how to think about rom-com? That's not an easy question, I know. No, but I'm loving these questions. They're yeah. all really uh, thoughtful. Um, it's harder to sustain yeah. a romantic comedy through line in a series. Yeah. Um, again, a romantic comedy-centric way of looking at TV is to realize that one of the most popular sitcoms in history, Friends, was actually a serial romantic comedy. I oh, mean, yeah. The relationships there, the two central relationships, you know, um, that's really what drove that series. I mean, yes, the friends and everything else. But again, we're not thinking of a lot of series work as being rom com, but it often is. Um, so if you've got, I guess it comes back to the hybrid idea. Mm. If you have an idea for a series where you, you can sustain a world, and a cast of characters, which will pretty much most probably have to be somewhat ensemble, mm, right, to sustain yeah. a series. Um, thinking of a romantic comedy as a through line for it is is a way to go. I mean, it depends. Something like Catastrophe, the yeah. British series. I mean, yeah. I think that was only two seasons, right? I don't I know. Mean, it definitely was at least two. I can't remember if it was two or three, but yes, definitely. Yeah. But I, more I, than I, again, one. that just shows you. But quite they short. Couldn't, yeah they couldn't quite sustain beyond even though they had a great premise which is let's just get married and you know we'll, we'll just see if this works um yeah so i would say the only the only drawback is they're harder to sustain and in series like um the mindy kaling one and yeah. uh, mindy project yeah certain yeah mindy project is it, you could feel the strain of mm. 
by season five. Oh, they're bringing the old boyfriend back. Oh, you know, and so there's a little bit of that sort of, you know, it just the contrivances start to pile up. Uh, but in a limited series, I mean, that's nothing wrong there. And again, if the other side of your equation, if the hybrid side, mm. uh, whether it's crime or drama or whatever the other thing is that you're working in, if that is strong and has its own energy and richness, then uh, you might be able to make it work. Yeah. I love that. And I love also that you have like such a keen eye as someone who analyzes really practically and works with Universal and has been able to articulate it so clearly in a book. I found it incredibly helpful, the writing, the romantic comedy, so many great frameworks. And you were also a practitioner in that you've written you know, over 20 uh, romance novels. So I'm just curious for you in terms of the development of your work. <laughs> my, my sordid past. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. I think it's brilliant. I love it. I love that you uh, uh, was, do that. So, when, the- yeah, I want, so I was curious to know. Just in term, it may be hard to remember, but just if you were to try to like assess your own work in terms of your own developments, either from a craft perspective or a theme perspective, is there anything that you would really notice about your own developments as a writer, having like that whole body of work to look back on? I think I stumbled into the notion of uh, spending, more, um, giving more attention to character. Mm, I think when okay. I started out writing romance novels, there was a certain formulaic structure that you had to adhere to, and mm. lots of. I was writing as a woman, of course, yeah. back in the eighties, which is when I was doing this. You weren't supposed to be involved in uh, romance novels if you were a man. Yeah. There was a famous uh, a number of gay writers who masqueraded as couples or as, as women. Um, so I was writing under a woman's name and obviously writing all the books from a female perspective. Mm. That probably cured me of 90% of my sexism oh, over the years. Yeah. So, so there's that because yeah. I was constantly, I was constantly quizzing my then wife and my mm. other female friends and just, you know, running up to them with like, well, what would you wear to such mm. her life? Yeah. Or even, even that thought of like, well, wh- why would you be worried about your clothing? And, you know, and endless questions in mm. terms of what a, a, a quote unquote female perspective would be. And in a way proving the maxim that at, at the core, you know, we're all the same human animal, right? Hey, even though there are vast differences in g- gender, um, I guess I was becoming gender fluid uh, ahead of the pack in that regard because mm. it forced me to really tap into the more sensitive side of my own male persona. And the further I got into it, I'd say ironically, to keep myself from being bored, mm. uh, the more I had to delve into unusual or deeper aspects of character. To creepies. I started out just doing like, oh, here's a cute plot, mm. or like here's a, a funny situation for these people to be in. And that was what drove uh, the earlier books that I wrote. And by the time I finished, um, they were more dramatic than funny, I think, mm. uh, because I was getting into slightly deeper waters. That's super interesting. 
what an amazing journey to have had. And I also read that you've composed songs for Carly Simon and Morrissey. When I read Indeed. that, I was like, how? How does that fit in your career? Okay, I love well, it, it. Answers its own, it, it answers its own question because the okay. only reason Morrissey is on my list is he covered a song that I wrote with Carly, ah, which okay. is called when, when You Close Your Eyes. It was on his most recent uh, album where he did covers. And yeah. I was thrilled. I just woke up one morning and somebody had sent me a video online and I was like, Morrissey? <laughs> really? Mm -hmm. uh, my other my other covers before that had all been either songs that I'd written with Carly or that she had recorded of mine. Uh, Judy Collins, another singer. This I know this all dates me. These are singers from back in the day. And um, those are the two biggest names. There are others as well. But I had a my own solo album on Electra back in the early seventies. I was a young sort of guy I had a record deal when I was in high school. Mm. Uh, if you want to talk about things that can really ruin your life, there's one. Right. Um, and, uh, I did not make much of a success of it. Um, the album tanked, but I did get covers and I sustained my career as a songwriter for a number of years. And it was really only in the early nineties where I finally kind of left the musical career behind and moved to LA. I moved from New York to Los Angeles going, I hear that they're paying writers in Hollywood. Mm, yeah. And what do you think you've taken from music, if anything? Uh, the best thing I think you can take from music is brevity. Oh, yeah. Meaning, sense. you know, screenwriting is so much about compression. Mm. I mean, if you are working as a screenwriter now on any kind of project, Think for a moment, how, what's the percentage of time you spend shrinking things down? Yes. <laughs> how much time are you spending compressing what you're doing? It's as someone once likened screenplays to 120 pages of haiku. Mm. Well, when you're a songwriter, it's the same deal. Meaning you have to be taking sometimes pretty big stories or pretty huge emotions or pretty complicated situations. And you've got to somehow distill that into a lyric that is maybe you know, a short poem length. And so I think you learn a lot about what a little can do and also how to kind of not sweat the small stuff and get to expressing larger things in smaller ways. Oh, I love that. And that's so beautifully said. And listeners, um, so many wonderful things in this conversation today. And Billy's book, Writing the Romantic Comedy, The Art of Crafting Funny Love Stories for the Screen is packed with them. For example, there are more craft enhancers in there, all of which I wrote down, all of which I went, uh, please <laughs> let me never forget this. Let me write some post-it notes, uh, compression being uh, one of them. And there's four more in the book. So I highly encourage you to read it. I found it really practical, useful, encouraging, insightful and um, it made me want to go back and watch some of the movies from that perspective. Like I want to go back now and watch her from that perspective and see how it works. So thank you so much for your time today, Billy. Uh, before we sign off, where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Um, I've just got a website, which is billymernet.com. So that that's pretty much got all the details. Um, everything else, uh, I'm just online. You know, you can... Find me on Insta. I used to be on Twitter, but of course, it's not Twitter anymore. No. I'll just say that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah. Wonderful. Excellent. Thank you. I really enjoyed speaking with you, Billy. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs>